Go ahead and grab your Bibles and flip in them with me to Colossians 3. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those black Bibles in the pews. Uh, You can find Colossians 3 on page 984, page 984. In The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins travels to the Lonely Mountain, and on his journey, he runs into many dangers. And yet, despite this, he found a safe place to rest. He found a sanctuary. He found Rivendale. Tolkien says, Elrond's house was perfect. Whether you liked food or sleep or storytelling or singing or reading or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, merely to be there was a cure for weariness. While Elrond's house is part of a fantasy world, it stirs up a longing in our hearts as we read about it. A longing for a house like that here on earth. A house where we can find rest. A house that's filled with singing. I think it's safe to say that Tolkien believed that this house on earth was the church. Charles Spurgeon once said this about the church. The church isn't an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they're saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It's the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Our passage this afternoon speaks in the same way about the church. It presents it as a house where we nourish one another with God's word. And yet the means by which this happens is actually pretty surprising when you read the text. We might expect the text to tell us to listen to preaching as we are now or to do one-on-one Bible studies or other things like that. And while we should do those things, Paul wants the church here in this passage to teach each other how? By singing. Like Elrond's house, the church should be a house filled with singing. And so this brings us to our main idea. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It's also in the bulletin for you. A gospel house is a singing house. Again, a gospel house is a singing house. So then if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? While the focus of our time today is going to be in chapter 3, verse 16, uh, I want us to start all the way up at verse 1 of chapter 3 so that we can get the context of the verse. Again in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. For there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You can be seated. It's been a while since we've been in Colossians. But as a reminder, Paul's helping this church see that they're new creations in Christ. As we saw in the reading, they were to put off the old rags of sin and they were to put on a new robe in Christ. And these garments of Christ's robe were compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, but most importantly, love. And as those clothed in Christ, they needed to be ruled by his peace, that they were no longer a divided people. As verse 15 says, they were now one body. And so this brings us to verse 16, which again is going to be the focus, our focus this afternoon. And so our first point that we're going to see in this verse is that we need to house the gospel with abundance. Again, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Notice first that Paul says, the word of Christ. You might be thinking, what, what, what is that word of Christ? Well, earlier in Colossians, in, verses one, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5, you can flip there if you'd like, Paul uses a similar phrase. He says, the word of the truth, the gospel. This word of Christ is the gospel. It's the heart of Scripture. It's the message of Christ's death and resurrection. It's the announcement that the true king has defeated his enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And he's done so, get this, 
not with a sword, not with an army behind him, but by shedding his own blood on the cross. And Christian, this word of Christ has been proclaimed to you. You who were dead in your sin. You were, who were in rebellion against this king. You who lived in darkness. God delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just want to warn you that that you are now currently in rebellion against this king, King Jesus. But in his kindness, he has given us this gospel to proclaim that you would trust in him, that you would recognize that you need him for salvation, that you need to be covered by his blood and forgiven. And so friend, if you trust in him, then you will be a child of the father You will be a citizen in Christ's kingdom, and you will be sealed by his spirit. So friend, trust in this Christ and believe the word of Christ. It's good news. It's the best news. It's the gospel. And so secondly, this word of Christ should dwell in us. In other words, Paul's saying the gospel should make It's home in you. You might see the you there, and you might jump straight to thinking about yourself individually, which is what I typically do when I read this passage. But the you there isn't talking about you as an individual. It's plural. It's you all. It's talking about the church. And so church, you're a home for the gospel, That just as the Ten Commandments made their home in the ark in the temple, the gospel has made its home in you. You're a temple for the living God in Christ, and his gospel is at the center. It's the heartbeat of the church. It's why we exist. But notice, thirdly, that this word of Christ should not just dwell in us, but it should dwell in us richly. In other words, Paul's saying, house the gospel abundantly. One thing I appreciate about my wife, Stephanie, uh, is that she works really hard to make our living room beautiful and and welcoming. Uh, That if it was up to me, and again, if you ever visited me before we were married in my apartment, uh, you would have just found a couch and a TV, and uh, maybe I'd give you like a bag of Cheetos or something this hospitality, but, but thankfully Stephanie has way better sensibilities than I do, that she picks out rugs and curtains and she hangs up mirrors so that the room feels more spacious and she puts up pictures of our family. And when she does this, it creates a beautiful environment. It's hospitable. And so it becomes not just a place that you want to live, or sorry, it becomes not just a place to live, it becomes a place that you want to live. And so likewise, when this gospel doctrine, this word of Christ makes its home in our hearts, it produces a gospel culture. It takes a people once marked by anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk and changes them into a people clothed in love, clothed in forgiveness, clothed in peace. 
In other, in other words, our life together as a church adorns the gospel. It displays the beauty and riches of the word of Christ when it dwells in us. But if you've spent any time in the church, you know that this is often easier said than done. Loving those who are different than us is hard. Forgiving those who have sinned against us is harder. And on top of that, we somehow have to live in peace with one another. I know that many, if not all of you, feel that struggle at times. And I'll be honest, I'm often right there with you. But this is why we need others. This is why we need others to help us house the gospel abundantly. That we need others to help us get the word of Christ deep in our hearts as a church. And so we need to be taught. And so this brings us to our second point. Teach the gospel with song. Notice that the second portion of our verse talks about teaching and admonishing. You might not recognize this, but this isn't the first time this phrase has appeared in Colossians. So if you look up at Colossians 1.28, you'll notice that Paul says, Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So while our English translations use warning and teaching here, they're actually the same words in the Greek as our passage today. So notice also that, that he's teaching and admonishing or warning and teaching with all wisdom. Again, just like we see in chapter 3, verse 16. But this wisdom isn't just some general self-helpy wisdom that you can buy at Barnes & Noble. No, this is wisdom from above, and it can only be found in Christ. This is why uh, chapter 2, verse 3, just a couple verses down, says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul proclaimed this Jesus Christ. He taught and admonished others to trust in him and to live for his glory. And now in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is calling this church to do the same. He wants them to teach and admonish one another in light of the gospel. And so you might be thinking, man, I'm, I'm not qualified for that. Isn't that what we, we pay pastors to do? I don't have a seminary degree. Well, it's true that your pastors have the primary responsibility to teach sound doctrine in this church. But having said that, pastors aren't the only ones who teach. Then in light of this verse, the whole church has a responsibility to teach. But notice how we do this. If you have the ESV translation, it says by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a fine translation. I actually think that the NASB and CSB are stronger here. They say that we teach and admonish one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This means that when we sing together, just as we did as a church, that we're teaching one another, that we're proclaiming the gospel to one another in song. Worship pastor and professor Matthew Westerholm frequently says, the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. 
The gospel is so true, so good, and so beautiful that mere words won't do. It deserves music. It deserves a score. It deserves all of the church's voices joining in together to sing it. And so then, how should this verse shape how we think about singing? Well, first, singing is for everyone. Listen, worship through song isn't a spectator sport. You don't come on Sunday just to watch the band do their thing. When we come together to sing, all of us have a job to do. This means that you should sing even if you're not a trained musician. You don't have to have a music degree to praise the Lord with singing. All you need is your voice and a heart that's been transformed by the gospel. And so, Christian, I want to encourage you, don't be embarrassed by your singing voice. Because you know why? God isn't. So lift up your heart and your voice knowing that your worship is acceptable in Christ. I think this is particularly important for fathers to remember. The way you participate in worship teaches your children are watching you. And they will see that singing is important if they see you sing. My dad, who's here today, uh, he was a great example of this growing up. I can't remember a Sunday where I didn't see him singing. And because of this, I've, I've never really felt uncomfortable singing in church. From what I saw, this was, this was just what you did. You came to church and you sang. And so brothers, I want to encourage you, sing loud. Sing passionately. I know that you can do it. I've been to the men's retreat. Singing is not effeminate. David, the guy who slayed Goliath with a slingshot, sang. Jesus, your king, who conquered sin, death, and the devil, sang. And so, brothers, sing. Sing because you've been redeemed by the king. Having said that, I and our other song leaders, Paul and Jono, we, we have a responsibility to help you sing. That we need to sing in a way that, that you can follow. More so than that, we need to lead in such a way that, that you want to join in with what we're doing. And this is why as we're preparing to lead congregational singing, we ask ourselves these questions. Is, is the song too high for the church to sing? Is the melody singable? Or is it worth singing? Is it a good melody? We ask, is the instrumentation too loud? Can the church hear each other sing? And we care about those things because our aim is to serve you for the glory of God. We want to accompany you as you sing to God and to one another. Because listen to this, you're the choir and we're here to accompany you. That's because we want everyone to be able to sing. And so secondly, 
What we see from this passage is that singing needs variety. So look back at that phrase, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There are a variety of views as to what this phrase means. Some believe that it's referring to different types of psalms. I think there's a lot of evidence for this. That all three of these terms are used to refer to the book of Psalms in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that in Matthew 26, verse 30, it even tells us that Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn after the Lord's Supper. And this hymn was likely Psalm 118 or Psalm 136. So again, we see that a hymn can refer to a psalm. Others believe that these three types of songs, uh, that these just would have been general terms that people knew for different types of songs. And so psalms, hymns, and songs were, were general terms that both Jew and Gentile used. And so while both of these views have helpful things uh, to them, I think we need to remember what Paul wants these songs to accomplish. That again, this phrase is coming after the word of Christ and teaching and admonishing with the wisdom of Christ. And so the songs that we sing together need to help the word of Christ dwell richly in us. And so I think what Paul's trying to say is sing a variety of songs that are filled with spiritual truth, truth from scripture, which means that we should sing the Psalms. Um, That even today we sang two songs that were uh, largely based off of uh, Psalm 119 and Psalm 42. And so Psalms like, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, they help us gaze at the glory of King Jesus, that he's the promised Messiah and the Son of God that these Psalms focus on. And then Psalms like Psalm 51 and Psalm 130, which we also sing for, frequently, they help us see our need for King Jesus. They help us confess our sin, and they help us look forward to his atoning sacrifice. And lastly, Psalms like Psalm 22 and Psalm 42, which again we sing today, they help us see Christ as a sufferer. And that's good news because they help meet us in our own suffering, in our own agony. This is why we sung this from Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in him who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold, cause this heart to praise you. The Psalms help us sing the word of Christ in every season. And yet we don't only need to sing the Psalms. Though all the Psalms contain the word of Christ and the shadows of the old covenant, we now have the substance And this is why Christians throughout the ages have written new hymns that help us articulate the gospel. It seems even that the Apostle Paul himself was already writing new hymns for the church to sing. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which we read at the beginning of our service. This is actually written in the style of a Greek hymn. And so while these Greek hymns were often written in praise of Caesar or some false god, Paul used this style to praise the true king, Jesus Christ. So Paul's telling the church here, if you're looking for a hymn to sing, look, I've already sent you one. It's right at the beginning of the letter. And so all in all, we need 
a variety of songs that help us combat the song of the serpent. Satan, our accuser, has just been singing the same song over and over again since the beginning of time. Singing, love your sin more than your Savior. And he tries to seduce us with that siren song. But you don't have to listen to him and his song. You can drown out his lies with the voices of God's people as we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we need each other. We need to hear each other sing these truths. That's why we need to be taught with song. And so this brings us to our last point. Sing the gospel with gratitude. Paul isn't just concerned with us singing the right words. And he's not just concerned with us having the right forms for singing. But he also wants us to sing with the right motives. This is why he tells us to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Our motivation when we sing should be thankfulness. And yet sometimes if we're honest, when we come to church, we struggle to sing with thankful hearts. Our gratitude can be squashed by our busyness throughout the week. Our schedules are packed. We're always moving from one thing to the next. And we've left little room to reflect on God's mercy. And yet we wonder why we feel so apathetic when we sing these truths. Our gratitude can also be squashed by bitterness. Maybe we've grown discontent with the hand that God has dealt us. And we find it easier to count up all of life's disappointments instead of counting all of its blessings. And while we might come to church and sing sweet melodies with our mouths, the melody in our hearts is bitter. Our gratitude can also be squashed by boredom. Maybe we've just slowly lost interest in the gospel and God's word, and it just seems rote to us. But could it be that we've grown bored because we've forgotten our own neediness? Could it be that we've grown bored because we've forgotten that we're utterly hopeless without God's mercy? Brothers and sisters, this gives us all the more reason to sing the gospel together. That as we lift our voices, we lift each other's eyes to Calvary. And when we gaze at the cross of Christ, our busy, bitter, and bored hearts are thawed out. And what's left? Thankfulness. This is why the hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote this. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. When we begin to sing thankfully, 
we start to live thankfully. When we're thankful for that cross, loving others becomes a lot lighter. Because we're amazed by how richly we've been loved by God. And when we're thankful for the cross, forgiving others becomes a lot easier. Because we're humbled by how we've been forgiven of an infinite debt. And when this happens, we house the gospel abundantly. It dwells richly in us. With this being my last sermon to you all, uh, as a staff pastor, uh, as always, I want to encourage you that I've seen the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I've seen you grow in your ability to sing together. That those that were here at the start of the church, we tried to do acapella and other things like that, and sometimes it didn't go very well. But now when people come visit our church, they say, man, that church can sing. But even greater than that, there's a gospel culture here that it's evident that the gospel has dug deep roots into you as God's people that your love for God and for one another has been so tangible. So let me just say that you, Covenant Baptist Church, have been a Rivendale for me, for my family, and for so many others. You've been a place that the weary can come and find rest in Christ. And you've been a place filled with joy and thankfulness and singing. And so even though I'm leaving, again, not today, but by the end of this month, my prayer is that you wouldn't merely continue to be that place, but that you would grow more and more in that. I know that the Lord will do this because you are his dwelling place and he is present here with you. The good work that he's begun, he will bring it to completion And on that day, you and I and all of the saints together again will sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. And we will shout and sing for joy for great in our midst is the Holy One of Israel. Brothers and sisters, let's labor to that day. And let's pray.